Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Molo Sanbonani, hello, how's it Shalom? It is a Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. And you know what that means. It is the time for the IRR show, hosted, of course, by Sarah Gunn. Sarah, good morning. How are you doing? Uh, hi, 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 Big Daddy. I'm doing well. Um, I'm still trying to wake up a bit, but otherwise I'm fine. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, you are mad, and uh, I am super, super well. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic new week, as always, and uh, lots of stuff happening in the news week. We're going to delve into that. Remember, the show always begins by looking at the news week that was. What happened? What got you interested? What had uh, tongues wagging at times? And what had us gnashing our teeth even at times? So we're going to have a look at that uh, before our first ad break. And, of course, um, we then continue the conversation. Uh, sorry, I don't know if we have a guest today. Do I have a guest today? Yes, we, yes, we, we do, unless he's, uh, still asleep. Um, our colleague Herman Petrouris is on. He, we're going to ask him about his, his letter to diplomats about IMF funding, which attracted some controversy. So it should be quite a lot of fun to delve into. Absolutely. That's going to be our conversation at, uh, 9.20 going on for about 30 minutes. And then, of course, we end the show by always looking at what we anticipate the news week ahead will look like. So welcome to the IRR show. Grab some coffee um, and, let, and let's get the conversation going. Sarah, it has been an interesting topsy-turvy week, especially in relation to the state, which is now receiving a lot of pushback from various quarters. And uh, I'm going to begin with the most topical one, I suppose, the taxi industry. Yes, yes. have literally said here and no further uh, we will not be listening to um, effectively what they're calling politicians that, you know, as being uh, illiterate to their industry, mm. saying we know best uh, about our industry and we will choose uh, to set our own regulations. Um, very interesting uh, pushback, isn't it, by the by, by the it's, it's actually fascinating because um, there are two things that strike me. The first is that the taxi industry, despite what it would cost them, um, went with the regulations in the first month or so of the lockdown. It, 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 by and large saw the necessity, even though it would mean a hit for them. Sorry, pardon the, pardon the reference. Um, oh. but, uh, what the, the, the misfortune I think the taxi industry has is that its minister is Fikile Mbalula. Um, and what, what the minister tried to do in coming out of the, uh, out of the more serious side of the lockdown, was to offer the taxi industry a billion rand in relief, but contingent upon suddenly now becoming a registered, uh, governed uh, sector, a formal sector. And that was, in my view, an incredibly stupid thing to do. A, the, the industry said, look, it's not nearly enough money. And B, is you can't sort of suddenly say, okay, we'll solve all our managerial problems over the industry by this. It, it, it's, it's a bit like hostage-taking. Um, so I, I think that was uh, incredibly silly. I think they pushed the taxi industry essentially to un, unlock the uh, lockdown. Absolutely. And it, again, a lot of people sort of wonder why, for example, when they watch my social media feed, why I'm very sympathetic to the taxi industry um, in a lot of my tweets. Well, firstly, it's an industry I understand very well. Um, 
having grown up in it, and in my formative years, having derived an income from it myself. So it, for a lot of people, it is a step-up industry, um, a truly market uh, really free market industry in which, you know, the very sort of people we don't think about and we don't give a second thought to find a re- reprieve, find income in that industry, number one. Number two, um, the jobs it supports. It supports, you know, we think it's just taxi owners and, and, and drivers. No, no, no. It supports an entire associated industry uh, and markets uh, f- from the lady who sells uh, hot food at the taxi rank to the guys who wash the taxis to mm-hmm. the rank marshals. It is a 90 billion rand a year industry and it is providing jobs for people who ordinarily would not find employment in other streams. So it is critically important for industries like that. I can even call them a big business to an extent mm-hmm. to find their backbone and push back against any regulations that seek to harm an industry. And we've been saying this, I think a lot generally on the show because a lot of people say, Oh, why do big business not push back against these regulations. Um, speaking about pushing back, I'm looking at the time and it's pushing <laughs> right now. Let's take our first break, Sarah. We'll pick up this conversation yeah. after the break as we look at this and other items that have made the news. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the IRR show. Uh, only here on Chai FM, of course, in conjunction with the Institute of Race Relations. Sarah, we were basically just talking about the tax industry before, and mm-hmm. we'll wrap up this point because I think there's other stuff we need to get into. Yeah. But I, you know, I think I was making the, the salient point in this regard. We've had South Africans complain for a very long time as to why isn't big business in this country pushing back against these job-killing and essentially livelihood-killing regulations that at times are actually quite asinine and don't make sense insofar as the stated objective of keeping the curve down or tackling COVID-19. And now we have an instance where actually a, a big business of a sort, um, the taxi industry is actually saying, hang on, no, this doesn't make sense. And we don't have to play to the fiddle of politicians who are quite frankly, economically literate to our industry. And it's been fantastic from my perspective, at least to see this, because I've always argued that, you know, we live in a democracy. A democracy is a two-way street in terms of the, the power between citizens and government. We, we are not subjects of the state. So that's been an interesting thing to see. And, and industry, industry is basically to chart the way, if I can call it that, sorry, for maybe other sectors to, to copy. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you completely. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but let me, let me move on because there's been okay. other countries, rather other, um, stakeholders, vested interest groups, rather, who have pushed back against the state in one form or the other. In this instance, I, I circle to a one, uh, South African Airways, which is, yeah. in, right now in a saga of trying to um, clip the wings back onto the plane, so to speak, on that uh, airline. But the unions are just not playing ball, are they, Sarah? Well, um, this is quite a fun one to watch. And I have to admit to being a little bit partisan. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether what the union is doing is good or bad. However, what they're doing is they're having essentially a fight with Minister Gordon. And he's a a tough figure and he's uh, dogged. And he has been determined that we have some or other state airline, which is actually just pure nonsense. And he suddenly, his compact with the union leadership, which he probably was quite sanguine about, has fallen apart. And the unions, together with some of the creditors, have pushed to have the business report, the business rescue report considered on the 14th of January, uh, 14th of uh, July. And I think it was meant to be considered last week. And Gordon is now accusing the unions of 
pushing the um, the, the airline into into liquidation and etc etc. I mean, I'm sure the unions are probably more concerned about the fact that the agreement with Godan would have given would have saved about a quarter of the jobs or a fifth of the jobs, and the rest would be lost. So, I'm not entirely sure if that is the uh, is the issue. But frankly, I think anything that that puts a a group of an interest group, a series of interest groups at SAA against the minister is probably not a bad thing. I, I don't think he's been good for the uh, industry. I don't think the push for SOEs on his part, and he wants SOEs left, right, and centre. Um, so this one we will definitely watch. I think at the heart of it also is a realization by everybody that the consequences of the illusion of, you know, ongoing state bailouts, ongoing state, uh, the state rather propping up a, an airline which has no market incentives to be profitable is, yeah. is quickly dissipating. And I think there's a moral panic from everybody uh, involved um, with everybody trying to assert their power. In this game right now of, you know, what do we do with SAA? Do we liquidate it? Do we, do we finally consign it to the, the, the rubbish heap of another failed SOE uh, experiment? Or do we try and save it? And what does saving it look like? Do we continue with propping it with state funds? In other words, taking money from poor South Africans to give to rich South Africans to fly on a propped up airline, which is essentially what we've been doing for the last, um, you know, few decades, to be honest, yeah. um, or do we finally give it to the market and see what the market does with it? What are, what are the rational decisions that, in other words, it's almost a legal test, isn't it? In so far as what would a rational man do in this circumstance if they were given the same, um, you know, metrics to work with, which is a, a bulky airline, overstaffed, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the markets, in so far as these business practitioner uh, fellows have been quite clear in saying, look, you're overstaffed. Uh, you've got commitments that you don't need. In real terms, mm-hmm. um, but you do have a wonderful network, uh, which could be very profitable. This, these yeah. are the things you need to do if this is to happen. So you're right, Sarah. We, we watch this, uh, uh, battle playing out with, um, keen eyes because as mm-hmm. I said, it is various vested interest groups that mm-hmm. are essentially in this fight and not necessarily, um, we're not really talking that, that is about the market fundamentals of an airline in this post uh, lockdown period. Speaking about fundamentals that no one's talking about, but they're clearly the chickens are coming home to roost. The Eastern Cape, the hospital crisis in that part of the mm. world, basically saying uh, healthcare in the Eastern Cape has collapsed. Now that's slightly mm. hyperbole, but um, there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there, Sarah? Well, well, it is particularly as it's no one, no one is surprised. I mean, it's not this has this this has been exacerbated by COVID, but it certainly wasn't caused by COVID. Um, the 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 crisis of service provision in the Eastern Cape generally has been appalling, which is, has its irony since the, um, the some of the great leaders supposedly of the ANC are came came from the Eastern Cape, but. The, the the sort of flagship hospital from a, a COVID point of view, which is Livingston Hospital. I mean, the stories coming out of there of the of the strikes and the, the fact that things haven't been cleaned and sewage running. It's just it's beyond imaginable. And in fact, the, the sign that it was in trouble was at the very beginning of the of the uh, crisis when the minister of health himself had to go down to the Eastern Cape to bang heads together and he ordered certain things to be done. And you just knew that the, the, sub, the substructure, the rot in the substructure was so great that, you know, there was just, 
you know, no one is surprised. It, it, it's actually, it's, I think it's a human rights crisis. Absolutely. Again, it comes back to what do you build um, in, a, in a free democratic society? Do you sp- focus your time? on building strong institutions that are able to respond to the needs of a citizenry? Or do you build a culture of big man politics where essentially the certain figures and figureheads who get to decide winners and losers in a given society and, of course, dispense patronage because they hold power? And I put it to the listener that it has been the 26 years of that latter type of politics, which is seeing the chickens or, uh, yeah, I'm right, the chickens come home to roost insofar as now there being no infrastructure, no systems of, 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 of um, any meaningful uh, type uh, to respond to a crisis when a crisis then hits. Uh, and this is not taking into account, of course, the crisis that has always been there. Yes. <laughs> Part of the world of, of people literally being subjected to substandard um, healthcare services and, of course, finding themselves um, suffering substandard healthcare outcomes. Uh, you know, so, again... These are the conversations that classical liberals have all the time of who, who, who dominates in a society? Is it the individual and the family and therefore services, um, and goods and policies being directed to advancing their well-being? Or is it the government and politicians? Because you can see what one looks like versus the other. Sarah, I'm keeping an eye on time, but I do know you wanted to quickly, quickly look at uh, oh no no! I think that's that's pretty much it. So that, that's pretty much it. I was oh, the only thing I was going to add is it's it's the failure of cardo deployment. Absolutely, absolutely, which is exactly a mechanism which props up politicians over people. But in any event, let us take this break, uh, Sarah Gone, and after the break, we have our guest Herman Pretorius from the Institute of Race Relations. IFM one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. Right. Um, my colleague, Herman Pretorius. Herman, welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on. No, my pleasure. Um, you, you're a natural guest in the sense that you always get involved in something at least mildly controversial. And uh, the reason we've called you in is that you developed a, a campaign, which we do. you do campaigns. That's what you do for the IRR, uh, mostly. Um, but this campaign is somewhat different to yes. the others. And it involved basically informing in a variety through a variety of sources the IMF to simply consider the the governance of South Africa and how it sh- and, and whether it should consider it must consider that when it considers granting a loan to South Africa it must consider the fact that at the moment the, certainly the government is not doing the sort of things the IMF would expect of it do you want to can you elaborate on that for me Yes, um, you know, in, in, in politics and in geopolitics as in life, um, and in the family home and in business, the person who controls the money supply really pulls the strings. That mm. is the general rule. So if, uh, and, and I've discovered this in my, uh, year at the IRR, if you want to get a project going, you can speak to a lot of colleagues and you can speak to the CEO and you can speak to everyone, but if you don't have um, the finance person on your side, then that that project really is dead in the water. So we've really applied the same principle, just on a larger scale. Essentially, saying the IMF is one of these options for the ANC to find the money it needs. I mean, there's only uh, a, a discrete number 
of places where the ANC can get the money it needs and the South African government can get the money it needs. It can try to tax South Africans more. That won't work. We're already taxed almost to maximum capacity. It can borrow more, but we are now junk status. So, you know, usual borrowing through bonds and so on isn't really an option. It can print money, but the Reserve Bank, thankfully, um, still has a measure of common sense and is fighting against that. Um, so the, the, the only opportunity really becomes one of um, finding a creditor or a benefactor that can give the necessary, you know, um, almost recovery loan kind of money to South Africa. The IMF is really the most prominent candidate there. And to get back to the principle of if you control the money supply, you call the shots, the IMF gets its money from donor nations. So taxpayers of those nations give the money to the government through taxation. The governments of those nations give it to the IMF. The IMF then doles it out with certain conditions. So the thinking of this campaign is we're not pressuring the IMF directly. We are following the money supply, telling countries like South Korea, like Germany, like United Kingdom, like Japan, like India, if you want uh, your taxpayer money, to be put to good use through IMF loan schemes to South Africa, well, then you need to know what's going on in that country and why things have gotten so bad. Um, it's interesting because I'm sure very many people just look at the IMF as a sort of money, money-soaked monolith that can dole out money on, the, on any basis it desires. And, and no one considers the fact that, in fact, the money is comes from other other taxpayers, world worldwide taxpayers, and uh, I think that that alone, even though it should be obvious, is uh, make, makes an interesting point. Yeah, and um, the, the the interesting thing is the the IMF really doesn't um, make itself very accessible to uh, political pressure. Uh, by organizations like the IRR, and, and understandably so. So knowing that applying pressure to the IMF directly is a bit of a tall order. It's, you know, almost trying, like trying to speak to, uh, to someone who can actually make a decision at Telcom at something. You know, the, 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 the line of escalation stops at a very definite point and you can't get around it. So going to the IMF directly isn't necessarily feasible. But yeah. if you apply the common sense rule of the money supplier calls the shots, then there are ways to get pressure on the IMF through the back channels, those channels of pressure that the Institute of Race Relations has really gotten to know over yeah. 90 years of exerting uh, behind and in front of the scenes pressure and getting yeah. crucial change. Um, can you just give an idea literally practically of, of what you did to make that to make those connections and to put forward the case? Well, uh, the first thing, as with uh, most things at the Institute of Race Relations, is to start with some good old fashioned proper research is to um, look at what has uh, uh, happened in South Africa and get a good policy understanding. Um, and that re- basis for this campaign is really Dr. Anthea Jeffries' uh, analysis of the 10-year lockdown, really making the case that over the last 10 years, South Africa has de facto been in a form of economic Lockdown and to mm-hmm. understand why has that happened and what's the plan going forward. So from that research basis, we then identify the policy directions that the government has already announced, has tried to pursue or are likely, uh, is likely to pursue, uh, uh going forward. 
Then we put that into a very simple accessible form as we always try to do. And the first stage was to engage with embassies in the country uh, here to um, consolidate the research, to summarize its research findings, and to address a first phase of letters to embassies on a local level saying, this is what you should know. Do not be misled by the ANC's talk of investment. They always say investment the one minute and then say things like expropriation without compensation the next, uh, the two being inherently contradictory. So that was the first stage, and um, adhering to the you know, protocol of diplomatic engagement, I won't go into too much detail, but we've had very constructive and very interesting interactions with embassies there. The next mm-hmm. step was to go a bit higher, to go to the countries and their representatives on the United Nations Human Rights Council, because there is mm-hmm. no way of divorcing economic freedom, economic prosperity, and human rights. So our plan is to contact at every phase, at every level of engagement from local embassies to parliaments, to ministers, to UN representatives, to think tanks, to governments, at every stage upping the pressure and making clear what's going on here. Okay, that's uh, that's bold, and I think the boldness has uh, caused some criticism um, of the IR and of your campaign, and particular from the editor of the City Press, Mondli Makanya. Um, what did he What did he complain of of you? Of, what did he complain of you doing? Well, firstly, he was very he was very uh, mean about the name of the campaign. But the the sad thing is that he even got that wrong. Um, so he, his main thrust of criticism was that we are apparently saboteurs. You know, we are sabotaging the country in an hour of need. We are standing in the way of desperately needed funding. Um, to the South African people and the South African government. But as is so often the case um, of mainstream media criticism of uh, the Institute of Race Relations, um, it's a very interesting narrative. Reality just failed, failed to adjust accordingly because we only approached the IMF donor nations after the government had approached the IMF. So this wasn't a preemptive strike, as you were, uh, or uh, as you would. This is... This is um, contributing to a discussion, to negotiations that's currently going on uh, between the IMF, its constituent parts, and the South African government. And secondly, we're not saying, please, don't give money to South Africa. We don't want it. We'd rather starve. We are saying, if you are going to give money to this country, give it to the, um, on the conditions that the sabotage that we've been seeing over the last 10 years won't continue. If the, the allegation of sabotage is going to be thrown around, surely it won't be landing on the IRR. We must ask who sabotaged SAA, who sabotaged ESCOM, who sabotaged economic growth. So if it's a question of sabotage, I think Mr. Makanya is barking up the wrong tree. I got an impression almost by the the tone in which he conveyed some of his criticism um, that it's, it's almost the sense of someone who does understand and, and, and might in other circumstances support your position, but things are so bad, he, he, he would rather say it is our duty to, to talk positively, to talk up the country, to um, look at what, what is possible, not what has gone wrong. And surely that is one of the real problems of opposing or criticizing the government is 
too few people have been willing to actually come out and say, this is, this is really wrong, this is really detrimental, and we've said it over a long period of time. And aren't we a little bit short of, particularly in the business sector, perhaps in the, and in the mainstream media, of real criticism where criticism is due because it's sending us into a sort of economic oblivion. That was my impression. Uh, would I be right? Yes. I, I, I do think that you're, you're, you are sadly on the money there. Um, what, whatever money might be left. <laughs> there isn't honest. any. <laughs> but yes, let, let's, let's call it you're, you're on the wallet then. There might be nothing in the wallet, but you're on the wallet. And, but that attitude of, you know, um, don't criticize the government. They're trying to do their best. They, uh, uh, that would have been so useful to the National Party in the 70s and 80s. Um, this mm-hmm. idea that you, you cannot criticize the country's government without criticizing or, you know, being unpatriotic towards the government. That's such a National Party trope that uh, this mm-hmm. idea that, um, criticism Honest, robust, substantiated criticism of a government somehow translates to disloyalty. And the, the, Mr. Makanya is in a very strange position. And then City Press in, in its editorial line as well. Every now and again, they do, um, speak some sense. Their editorial line every so often runs into some useful contribution. But the problem is, in Afrikaans, we have the saying, they struggle to put cloaky by the word. They, they, they don't quite manage to get the paw to the ear on mm. what is actually causation and, uh, you know, what is cause and what is result. You can have a problem, um, if you're working for City Press or many in the mainstream media with a lack of economic growth. But heaven forbid we take that to its logical conclusion that things like black economic empowerment have not spurred economic growth but has only enriched an elite few. Heaven forbid you make the connection between, you know, the detrimental state um, or the detrimental results of policy and the policies themselves. And City Press and the mainstream media might at this time be the first to decry the absence of economic growth. But South Africans are way ahead of them on Mm. making the conclusions that they refuse to make, getting the poor to the ear and understanding that the results of policy cannot be divorced from policy. BEE hasn't failed because it has been implemented by, you know, the ANC. It's failed because it's an awful policy. Cater Mm. deployment hasn't failed because it's been done badly. It's failed because it's an awful policy. State control in the economy can't be done in a way that might be useful. It has failed because it is an awful policy. And the commentariat in this country sometimes are, they charge bravely up to a point until they need to reach a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes an issue of, well, you know, it, 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 it's almost like a man standing amidst a flood yelling at the heavens, something must be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's build a raft. <laughs> The IRR, we're willing to say, you know what, let's not just say something must be done. Let's identify what must be done and how. Yeah. Well, uh, it comes to mind, I think, the, the saying about uh, patriotism being the, the, the last refuge of the scoundrel. Um, and that's, uh, that, that, that 
to me is is exactly it, it's almost like a, a fear that if you you've identified the problems you've expressed a view on the problems if you're in the mainstream media or you're in bi- you're in business but if it once it you actually have to be pushed to to meeting the government head on you back down and that that mm-hmm. seems to be a common theme that runs through the uh, that runs through our society i mean i saw this morning for example that moody's has da- downgraded the idc and the dbsa the development bank of south africa um and you know this is like every few weeks we almost get a, a major institution being downgraded or being further downgraded now it's it's within that context that you would think that I'm not sure short of absolutely collapsing how fast South Africa has to go down the, the sort of rabbit hole of economic disaster before we largely people opposing what the government is doing actually get on board. And my, my sense is that part of the reason one goes to the donors to the IMF is because, well, you know, we can't make headway with our, with our compatriots. So, Let's go, let's, let's go more direct. And I must say that the, the thing that has always been the saving grace of this country, and um, I think our colleague John Ken Berman calls it a countervailing force, has been the common sense decency of mm. ordinary South Africans. Ordinary South Africans know you cannot spend your way, uh, you cannot borrow your way out of debt, nor can you spend your way out of insolvency. They know that you cannot try to defy the laws of economic gravity without at some point falling flatly on your face. So it's not necessarily an issue of convincing our compatriots. It is an issue of convincing a very select group of our compatriots, those who would style themselves the pundits, the commentariat, and the analysts. And um, it, it's, it's, it's telling that in a situation where we are currently in, and that if you speak to small business owners, if you speak to people who are actually on the front lines experiencing the realities of economic policy, there's no uncertainty as to what must be done. And it can be summed up in a word or in a phrase that might be so cliche but so true. Get people back to work. If you're a government and you're not asking yourself every time you implement a policy, will this get people back to work? And if you don't allow yourself to be guided by the data, then you are going to be out of touch with reality. And if you then add a dosage of ideological addiction, then you're not only out of touch with reality, but you actively dis- uh, despise reality for not adjusting to your expectations. And what the IRR can do through this campaign is harness the common sense of South Africans of that idea of getting people back to work. Combine that with the research that we've done over many, many decades to show what works in South Africa, what doesn't, and to make a case to those money people calling the shots and to, you know, just pressure, find a pressure point that you can jab a bit and the government will react. And the COVID lockdown has really shown that Despite all, you know, um, uh, understanding that the status quo paradigm is so powerful and so um, behemothic and so unassailable, 
We've seen weeks and weeks and weeks of government failure, government retreat, citizen victory. It's been tough. It's been difficult. But we've had enough instances of the people of South Africa saying, you know what? No. And government saying, all right, fine. Fine, 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 fine. And we see that now with the taxis. I think that's yeah, glorious. That's... And that kind of can-do spirit, South Africans need to rediscover. And I think getting them pardon, in, in, to participate in this campaign is part of that. Uh, Herman, yeah, sorry, I figured I was going to just say that we have to go to an ad break and we'll uh, pick it up from there. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back, and uh, I, I'm maybe uh, my colleague uh, Big Daddy Liberty will chime in here. But one of the things I wanted to raise with with Herman is the fact that given the given the fact that. If we go the IMF route of, on anything, um, other than on COVID, any other uh, application for a loan will be contingent on making structural reforms. And yet, each, every public speech I have read or heard of the president in the last two or three months has repeated the themes of EWC, expropriation without compensation, cadre deployment, um, BEE being up, upgraded, if, 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 if nothing else, um, and essentially going for everything that the IMF would not want us to do. Um, is, is there, what, why the disconnect? Well, um, I think the answer can be, can be uh, summed up in one word, and I think people will start getting annoyed by my constant repetition of the word, but it's ideology. Um, they, you, you can you can almost draw a parallel between the upgrading of BEE and the downgrading of the country, not because no. there's some wonderful because there's some you know racial stigma around black economic empowerment is a bad thing. No, we all agree that black economic empowerment is a vital and necessary thing. It's the same idea of saying I think Black Lives Matter is not the same as saying I support the movement called. Black Lives Matter. I support black economic empowerment without the capital letters because if I shove in the capital letters there, then I am supporting a policy that has failed. So the question about, you know, what is going wrong in this country? Why is the government making mistake after mistake after mistake? Well, because they are entrenched um, in a worldview that has consistently throughout history assumed its success before it has had any reason to believe it attainable. And that is a, an approach of state control that a centralized government can somehow understand what the needs of 60 million or more people at any given point might be and to legislate, to regulate, to manage what they can wear, what they can buy, and when they might eat cooked chicken. So if you want to see the absolute disconnect, the absolute ideological addiction of this government, look no further than the insane idea around the minister, a cabinet minister of a country on this earth. You know, this isn't Narnia. This is a country on the planet Earth where a senior ranking cabinet minister thought it worth his while to regulate cooked chicken and crop bottoms. 
I know what cooked chicken is. I've never, never understood what a crop bottom is. But if you think that this government has any inclination to correspond with reality, I have only two words for you. Cropped bottoms. Just think about those words and understand that the disconnect is so fundamental. It is like trying to convince a person who refuses to look that the sky is blue. Now, Herman, listening to you, I think the question a lot of listeners might be thinking is, okay, great, we hear this, we agree, uh, we should not be funding or asking other countries to fund essentially the same failed policy um, approaches, the same failed statism, if you will. So what does the IRR suggest then? What, what do we do um, to, you know, put not only put pressure, sorry, on the state, but specifically what policy proposals are we suggesting um, government should follow and then receive funding? Well, essentially, you see, it's an interesting situation because I quickly want to take a look back at history. This isn't the first time South Africa has stared a debt crisis in the face. Um, when the apartheid government fell, you know, in the early 90s and the government of national unity under Mandela took over in 94, South Africa was in a quite perilous fiscal position. The, the, I mean, the, the money was, was, was spent. Um, this idea that the Nats had this high economic competence is a bit of a, you know, it, I mean, it's, 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 it's very much a myth. But the country in the first 16 years of democracy really stared, um, fiscal disaster directly in the face. And knowing that they must get this governing thing going, they must get the fiscus to a point of health, they must get the economy back on track, knowing that if they didn't do that, they would end up as not a proud liberation movement transitioning to government, but as a liberation movement that bungled the takeoff and that crashed immediately into the loving embrace of an IMF bailout. I say loving embrace, uh, you know, tough love. But so facing this problem of a fiscal crisis and debt and a stagnant economy and a lack of necessary government expenditure capital, the Mbeki government took the decision or under the, the leadership, essentially the prime ministership of, uh, of, of Tom Mbeki, took the decision to behave fiscally responsible and liberalize the markets, govern as a centrist, pragmatic government. In fact, Trevor Manuel um, was the economic policy of Trevor Manuel would these days be considered hard right, not far right, but hard right, like Thatcher right, in the sense that you don't take nonsense from the labor unions and you cut state expenditure to make sure the government lives within its needs. In fact, Zapiro, um, I remember, drew a cartoon of Trevor Manuel with a little Thatcher hairdo and a Thatcher handbag. So staring an IMF bailout in the face, Mbeki had the foresight to understand that getting South Africa's fiscal house in order could get this country to a point of recovery. So South Africa has faced these circumstances before. It's not a change that we are, you know, reaching for the moon here. So if you want to look how South Africa in the late 90s avoided 
the necessity, the embarrassing necessity of an IMF bailout, look at the policies they implemented. They implemented liberalized market policies, cutting red tape, cutting state expenditure. In fact, 13 years into the new democracy, South Africa ran into a budget surplus, an astounding achievement for a developing nation. And the IRR is saying, when we say go back to the good old days, we're not saying go back to Verwurten pre-94. We are saying just go back to common sense. We've been there before. We can be there again. We need a gear change. And that gear can be, you know, spelled with a capital G, E, A, and R. You heard it right there from Herman Pretorius from the Institute of Race Relations. Herman, uh, we've got a minute left. Uh, What should the people look out for uh, from the IRR? What's next in your campaign? We are going global. Uh, We we are going to write to more than 100 organizations uh, similar to the IRR who can, within the countries we are contacting, make the case that their taxpayer money, just like our taxpayer money, deserves to be spent responsibly. And if you're going to bail out a struggling country and going to do good in that way, you need to make sure that this addict isn't falling back into old habits. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's Herman Pretorius from the Institute of Race Relations. We said thank you too very much to you. We must go to an ad break. After the break, we look at the news week ahead. What to expect in this wonderful republic. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Yeah, boy, yes. Shalom, everybody. It's Big Daddy Liberty here with Sarah Gunn. Sorry, a very interesting conversation that with Uwe Herman, again, underscoring the importance of bringing in the foreign, excuse me, the international community, uh, when, when it comes to raising awareness about the plight of South Africans and, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the nature of the government. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you uh, what, um, I'm sort of impressed with ourselves about is the fact that the Herman's uh, campaigns tend to be very, very much out of the box. And I think, in this in this time of, of of world crisis, out of the box is what you need. And far be it from anyone to tell us that this campaign is in, is is intended to sabotage the country. Absolutely, absolutely. Speaking about sabotage, uh, hopefully the news are <laughs> just more bad news. Um, but what are we expecting? What are we looking uh, to in the week, Sarah? What's what's on your radar? Okay. Um, it's very much what we've talked about. I think we've got to carry on watching the interplay between the taxi industry and government. Um, SAA will, you know, every week there's something new to get completely annoyed about. Uh, I think there's going to be, there, there are going to be appeals about regulations. There are going to be applications to, to reduce regulations or change regulations. Um, for example, the restaurants can open, but they can't sell alcohol. It's almost like every time the government moves forward, it puts something in the way that's just set to ignore, um, irritate the public. Um, and I want to, I just want to mention something that I don't think has immediate implications, but the implications will flow, flow later. And that is that, uh, the, um, our public protector, uh, Kwebani, has had an appeal on the on the Estina Dairy case, which was found against her in the High Court, including a personal costs order. Um, the appeal was, failed. In fact, they just rejected. They said she they had no right to appeal. There's not likely to be a better result. And the personal costs order remains. So 
that will obviously have an impact on the whole Estina Dairy issue once it's finally, you know, taken up by the National Prosecuting Authority. And the fact that, you know, it's like um, Government 20 um, Public Protector 1 on, on court cases uh, is not, uh, doesn't add to her attention to, to uh, oppose the disciplinary hearing to be held against her by Parliament. So although that's not immediate, I think it, it will keep on flowing. It will come up every now and again, and it, it will make a difference to our political discourse. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, maybe from my side, again, I also will be watching the taxi issue with bated breath. In fact, not just watching it, I will be going and talking to the taxi oh, industry. I'll be going out and... Um, uh, especially because I'm here in KZN. They're, they're the rebels in all of this, if I'm yeah. to be brutally honest. Um, so I'm going to bring people on my channel some interviews from the taxi guys, including its passengers, and saying, you know, who should take the risk um, and who should reap the reward? Should it be the politicians uh, or them as the entrepreneurs in the industry? So look forward to that. On Wednesday on the Big Daddy Liberty Show, I'll also chat to a few Zionist friends as we look at uh, the attack that Mokweng, Mokweng has un- endured for voicing his support for Israel as, as a state and country, should we be doing um, when the vast majority of South Africans actually are in favor and support Israel? You know, so we're going to have that conversation on Wednesday on the Big Daddy Liberty Show. Uh, Sorry, a final word before we wrap up? Uh, just to say that uh, I've written an article, which I don't think has been published yet, about that same issue. And I've seen that there's an editorial in today's business day saying he crossed a line. And uh, I'm going to take it on and say that this is the least of the lines he's crossed. He's crossed much more serious lines than this. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, with that being said, thank you so much, dear listener, for having joined us on the IRR show. You can catch us again next week, Tuesday, as we talk all things through the lens of classical liberalism. Uh, thanks to the team behind us, who are obviously the technical team who put this all together. And uh, we'll see you guys next week.